Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. As I was contemplating last night where I would go, and I'm going to kind of fast forward a bit, and kind of going towards, we're talking about Paul and his journey, and and all the letters that were sent to the churches. And this morning I want to focus on the seventh church that he sent a letter to, and that was the church of Laodicea. And I want us to kind of understand what the context here is. And he's talking about the church being complacent, okay? And why would I talk about the church being complacent? Well, as we've gone through the pandemic this year, we've seen drop in attendance for very good reason. We've gone through things where we're not used to, we're not doing the things that we were doing. And now as we're kind of transitioning into a new phase, people are having a hard time getting back to those things that we were used to doing. And that doesn't mean it's all going to come back at once. But understand that God's going to pave a way for us to get back into those things. And so we're going to kind of have to encourage one another. We're going to have to kind of prod ourselves along to get back to where we were. And and like I said, it's going to be a process. We all know that. But I want to kind of focus on that this morning. The letters to the seven churches are God's x-rays, if you will, given so that we might examine our own lives and ministries. Judgment is going to come to this world, but it first begins at the house of God, right here where we sit. This is where it's going to be begin. This is going to be the battleground. This refining fire is aimed at returning the church to its founder, Thus, in most of these letters, we find rebuke as well as encouragement. Churches that start well often don't finish well. If the cause for this is because its members want to participate in the worldliness of an affluent society, the church will face the judgment of the Lord. Now, the Laodicean church had become complacent, about the cause of Christ because its members were immersed in that worldly attitude. Jesus tells them that he would not accept their lukewarm attitude, and he wanted them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And like I said, I'm going to kind of go fast forward a little bit this morning from Pastor Martin's series and kind of go kind of towards the end here. Now, Like I said, the seventh and concluding message to the seven churches of Asia is addressed to the angel of the church of Laodicea. The city was situated about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia on the road to Colossae at the intersection of three important roads. It was one of the richest commercial centers in the world and a picture of an affluent society. Laodicea was a prominent center of banking and industry. The city was famous for a beautiful glossy black wool used to make clothing and carpets. And a pharmaceutical eye salve was made in the city and was exported far and wide. Why do I mention those things? What does that have bearing to God's word? Well, the city of Laodicea was so rich and so were the people of his church, they became complacent. 
And how often do we get comfortable in our own lifestyle? We get comfortable with the things that are, and I hate to use these quotes again, the new norm. That we're not willing to get outside our comfort zone. That we're not willing to sacrifice again the things that God is calling us to do so. Now, the Laodicea church was even written a letter by the Apostle Paul, which in God's providence had been lost. Christ gives his titles in the second part of Revelation chapter 3 in verse 14. Um, So again, he gives his title here, the Amen, the Faithful, and True Witness the source of the creation of God, and it says this, Jesus Christ presents himself as the Amen. Now, this is the one letter where Christ's titles are not drawn from his description in chapter 1. But the word Amen in the Hebrew word is truth. In Greek, it means so be it, or let it stand. And it is usually translated verily or truly when part of the gospel declarations of Jesus are presented. Now, as a title of Christ, it indicates his sovereignty and the certainty of the fulfillment of his promises. When Christ speaks, it is the final word, and his will is always affected. Christ also entitles himself the faithful and true witness in sharp contrast to the church in Laodicea, which was neither faithful nor true. The fact that Christ is both a faithful and true witness gives special solemnness to the words which follow. The Lord is about to tell this church the truth about its condition. They're going to get a clear insight of exactly how God views this particular church. Now, if it were me, I'd be on pins and needles. What's the Lord going to say about us? What are we supposed to do about it? You know, if, if it kind of feels like you're a student again and you're waiting for that test to come back and figure out what grade you got on that test. I thought I did good, you know, I, I prepared and I did all these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a good grade, does it? How many of you have been in that situation before where you thought you were doing it correctly only to find out you failed miserably? But that's what the church is approaching here. They know that they're going to get a direct answer as to the condition of where they're at. Verse 15 begins, Christ, look at the church. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. In other words, either do it or don't do it at all. Don't be lukewarm. We know the verse about that. We know that God says he would spit us out of his mouth if we were lukewarm. And that is, that's, that's what he's warning this church about. Don't be lukewarm. The letter has no word of commendation, neither is there any word of censure for false teaching or immorality. The trouble at Laodicea is that they were neither hot or cold. The Greek words are striking, and we are left no doubt concerning their meaning. Cold means icy cold, and hot means boiling hot. Jesus Christ would prefer us to boil or freeze 
rather than simmer down into an insensitive lukewarmness. Outright rejection of the faith is better than the insensitivity to it, much like the Laodiceans were displaying. To profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire is a disaster for the church, and it is a disaster for the world. Their coolness, their aloofness, their self-sitterness was a denial of the meaningfulness of Christ and what he had done. They said they believed but lived like it was unimportant. We know individuals like this. We know individuals that claim the gospel and say that Christ is the center of my life, but then you see them two days later walking down to the bar or they're you know, doing something that obviously does not display that Christ is the center of their life. So what do we do about that? Our inner spiritual fire is always in constant danger of dying down. You've experienced this. I've experienced this. Where you go through a spell of, you know what, I am on fire for Christ. I'm ready to take on the world. Bring it on, God. Let's go. And then there's other weeks like, you know, I'm just going to lock my office door and I'm just going to sit in there this week. I'm going to get things done that I want to get done. You know, not in regards to what God may actually have for me or an opportunity that he might be presenting to me. And I think we've all been there before. The idea of being on fire for Christ will strike some people as dangerous emotionalism. Know this. Having a relationship with God is not about emotion. It is not about emotion. It is about doing the will of God even in the most dire circumstances. And it is listening to his call. It is not about how it makes me feel or how it makes you feel. My job as I stand here is to confront you. You've heard the saying, afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. That's my job. And it's not always easy, but that is what God has called me to do. And that's what he was calling the church to do then. To not do it half-heartedly, but to do it with the presence of mind knowing that God is with them. They could not fail if they relied upon God, and that's what we need to do. Fanaticism is not what is intended here. Fanaticism is an unreasoning, and it's unintelligent. It is action without reflection. If Jesus is true, if he truly is the Son of God, who became flesh, died for our sins, and was raised from the dead, if Christmas Day, Good Friday, and Easter Day are more than meaningless holidays, then nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to Christ will do. This means putting him first in our private and public life. Seeking his glory and obeying his will. Better to be icy in rejection than to insult him by claiming the gospel and doing nothing about it.
compromising what he died for is an insult which causes him to experience a repulsing nausea down deep. In other words, he will spit us out of his mouth. Have you ever had something lukewarm in your mouth that was supposed to be hot? It's gross, isn't it? It repulses you. And that's what God is saying. I am repulsed by you. Now, that's something I wouldn't take very lightly. If God is repulsed by what I'm doing, I'm hoping that I'm going to get back to the thing that God has called me to do and not be repulsing, to be on fire, to not approach things with a half heart. A very strong warning here is given to the spiritually indifferent. Jesus' repugnancy is expressed in a descriptive fashion here. He will spit, literally vomit them out of his mouth. Lukewarm Christianity makes Jesus sick. If you are unmoved or unaroused by the gospel of his life and his death and his resurrection, you make him sick. Is that descriptive enough for you? Christ gets angry with apostasy and he gets sick at our indifference. The Christian church has often been scared of enthusiasm. John Wesley and his friends found that out and have so many others before and since. But enthusiasm is an essential part of Christianity. We should be excited to do the things of God. We should be excited to get back to the things we used to do. We should be excited for the things and the opportunities that God is going to present to us. But enthusiasm is an essential part of Christianity. Christ warmly approves of it, even if the church does not. Verse 17 in Revelation chapter 3 digs into the depth of their problem. It says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They're too focused on the things that are lying right in front of them. They get comfortable because their needs are taken care of. They're not worried about the exterior forces that are trying to pry that away from them because it often will happen. Those things are fleeting. Wealth, power. Those things can be ripped from us in an instant. And then what are you left with? If we are not grounded, if we are not rooted in this enthusiasm for Christ, the, the, the things that we talked about in the last couple of weeks, our joy, our joy would be ripped from us. As a matter of fact, I'll go so as bold to say that you don't have true joy if that's where you place your priorities. This then is Christ's view of us, of Christians who are not really wholeheartedly committed to him. Morally and spiritually, they are naked. They are blind beggars. They are naked beggars because they have nothing with which to purchase their forgiveness or entry into the kingdom of God. 
Wealth and power get you nowhere. Fame and fortune will go away. But God is saying if we do not put our focus into him, into his truth, then we are left with nothing. We won't enter into the kingdom of God. And what's sad is for most people who God is clearly describing here, they're not even going to know it when it happens. And he know where he puts the blame for that? He puts it on us. Because we didn't have the fire, we didn't have the enthusiasm to let them know it. A black preacher once said that a good many of his congregation would be lost because they were too generous. Explain. He saw that the people looked rather surprised, so he said, Perhaps you think I have made a mistake, and that I ought to have said that you will be lost because you are not generous enough. That is not so. I meant what I just said, he goes on. You give away too many sermons. You hear them as they were from other people. They are a good many who listen for those behind them. They say the message is very good for neighbor so-and-so, and they pass it over their shoulders till it gets clear out the door. Understand what he's saying here? We are no good to the people outside these walls if we are not grounded in our own faith. Don't be like the Laodiceans and say, yes, I know Christ. Yes, I believe in the gospel. But then when you walk out those doors, you go lukewarm again. It's good to get here. It's good to be fed. It's good sometimes to just sit in the pew and understand that, okay, God, I need you to fill me up today. I need you to bring me to a place where I'm comfortable in my own Christian skin. I need you to bring me to a place where it will transpire out those doors. Folks, he wants to do that for you every single time you step into his presence. He wants to do it right now where you're sitting. He wants to fill you up. He wants to see you on fire. But we get in our own way, don't we? We don't allow God to fully show his potential to others through us. Because we have a lack or we have that tendency to move towards complacency. The Laodiceans are a typical of this modern world, which reveals in what the natural eye sees, but is untouched by the gospel and does not see beyond the veil of the material to the unseen real external spiritual riches. People are not going to see those things if we're so worried about the other things in our life. So many want, give, want to give advice. Christ Jesus now gives those who will receive it some advice for eternity in verse 18. It says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, 
an eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Can you read this verse without being moved? We have a God who is content to give advice to his creation. He is the Lord of the expanding universe. He has countless galaxies of stars at his fingertips. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. The Lord God Almighty. He has the right to issue orders for us to obey. He has that right. What right do we have to say no? What right do we have to say, I'll do that later. I'll do that when it's convenient for me. But you have to understand, instead he gives advice and he advises us what we do have to heed. The blueprints are laid out for us. He could be that authoritarian command. He could force us to do things. He has that power. But he doesn't do that, does he? He counsels us. He lets us get to that point where we understand what we're supposed to do. And you know why we understand those things? It's because we have a relationship with him. How many relationships are you involved in where one person dictates everything? Men, put your hands down. How many of us are in relationships where one person dictates everything? That's not a relationship. He respects individual responsibility and the freedom of choice. What then is his advice then? He counsels them to buy from him. They emphasize that it is to come from God. They must no longer trust in their riches, but come to him for eternal riches. They consider themselves self-sufficient. Many of us may be sitting here today thinking that they're self-sufficient. But they must humbly find their sufficiency in only one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Nothing else will suffice other than Christ. There's a gentle irony in the exhortation for them to buy these needed spiritual things. Though they were well endowed with the riches of this earth, what they needed, they could not buy. They were to obtain gold from Christ. That is, the true riches, and more specifically, that which corresponds to the glory of God himself. The church is also summoned to cover her nakedness with garments of purity and sincerity, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. They needed the white garments of God's righteousness and grace. Verse 8. Like the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's story, the emperor's new suit. Some of you are familiar with the story. These Christians thought they were clothed in splendor when they were really naked. To be naked meant to be defeated and humiliated. For you would be naked for no other reason unless you just lost your mind completely. The Laodiceans were blind and could not see their spiritual condition. Church, I pray that we do not have our blinders on to the condition of where we stand right now. We need to have our eyes opened. 
We cannot continue church as it is. What do I mean by that? It means that we've got to get outside of our comfort zones here. And this is a common thing that I teach our youth department. We have to get outside our comfort zone. And it's not going to be just once. And it's not going to be just twice. It's going to be on multiple occasions. It's going to get to the point, if you're doing it right, that the uncomfortableness becomes comfortable to you. Let them come to Jesus. He can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they have never dreamed of before. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can save and he can sanctify them. He has died for them and he has risen again. And through his blood, they can be cleansed by his living presence within them. They can be changed. This is not just for the rich. This is not just for the poor. This is for everybody. Everybody can partake in this relationship. Everybody can buy the gold of Jesus. You can invest yourself in him. But again, some of us are just like, well, I have time. Or it's not convenient for me at this time. But I'm going to take heed to your word and I'm going to look into that later. Folks, do not wait. Take the time. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what's stopping you? We have plenty of excuses. We have plenty of reasons why we shouldn't. But there's so many reasons why you should. And the ultimate reason is, where does your joy come from? And do you see that joy lasting in the things that you're putting your joy into? Like I said, within this letter, there's rebukes, but there's also encouragement. Verse 19 tells us why Jesus is so concerned for them and us. Jesus is concerned for us in our spiritual condition because simply he loves us. He loves us. Jesus says to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus still loves even the lukewarm individual. Even though their love for him has grown cold, he will not forsake them. He planned to reprove and discipline them as proof of his love, as parents. Do we not love our children? But do we not have to discipline them as well to show that love? It's the same relationship we have with Christ. A little story for you. A lady in England was out riding and she saw a shepherd who had some dogs driving sheep. If the sheep stopped to drink out of the pools in the streets, he would have the dogs after them. And she kept saying to herself, what a cruel man 
to deny these sheep water. But by and by, the shepherd came to a beautiful park, opened the great iron gate, and let all the sheep in there where the grass was nice and tall, it was sweet, it was fresh, and it had a beautiful river running right through the park. And she said, he isn't a cruel shepherd after all. He didn't want them to eat and drink by the roadside where danger lurked. He was only trying to get them to a better place. Christ is here using reprove and discipline to move his church to a better state of spirituality and maturity. That's what he's doing with this. The verb tense changes in verse 19 to imperatives, and they are commanded to be zealous and immediately repent. Let them be filled up with zeal. The fallenness and complacency and compromise must be replaced with humility and repentance. To repent is to turn with resolution from all that is known to be contrary to God's will. Like the Laodiceans, we have to renounce the old life and with its complacency and turn to Jesus to all spiritual matters. Smug self-satisfaction is not appropriate for one who bears the name of Christ. Shallow esteem never saved anyone. We must break from complacent and compromising attitudes. In repentance, we must spit them out of our life. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant theologian whose sermons had an overwhelming impact on those who heard them. One in particular, his famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, moved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to repentance and salvation. That single message helped to spark the revival known as the Great Awakening. Now, from a human standpoint here, it seems incredible that such a far-reaching result would come from just one message. How about Reverend Billy Graham? You know how many messages he preached? Three. Out of all the years in his ministry, he preached three sermons. The same message over and over and over again. But those of us who have heard Billy Graham many times, did you notice that there was only three? No. Because God spoke through him, and then he spoke to the people. Those of you know who I'm talk- know what I'm talking about. Have you ever read through the Bible? Come to a passage that you've read maybe a hundred times. But in that particular time when you read it, something was revealed to you that had never been revealed to you before? Understand that the message does not change. The message does not change. But God can change in you. God can present something to you, nothing new, but something great from what was already there. And that's what we need to do as a church. We know how to run operations. We know how to do ministry. It's all laid out for us. But if we don't do it with the passion that Christ has called us to, it's going to be business as usual. Nothing's ever going to change. 
And it doesn't mean we change things up. We don't change the gospel. We don't change what we're already preaching. We don't change what we're already teaching. We find a way to get enthusiastic about it. We find a way to bring that joy in life that is ministry so that we can reach others. And quite frankly, we reach each other because we need it, don't we? Let's confess our spiritual lethargy and lack of love and ask God to make us zealous for the lost. Let us ask for the fire of God to fall once again on our church and our land. Be zealous if you desire to see souls converted. If you wish to place crowns upon the head of the Savior and see his throne lifted high, then be filled with zeal. The world will be converted by the zeal of the church. Prudence, knowledge, patience, and courage will follow in their places. But zeal must lead the change. Zeal draws its power from the continued operations of the Holy Spirit within the soul. If our spiritual life dwindles, we will not know zeal. But if we are strong and vigorous within, we will feel a loving eagerness to serve Him and serve others at that sacrificial cost again. We are to be like Christ. He served sacrificially, as we should as well. A deep sense of gratitude will nourish Christian zeal. When we look at what we were redeemed from, we find reasons why we should live and give to our God. Zeal is also stimulated by the thought of the eternal future. It looks with tearful eyes down to the flames of hell, and it cannot slumber. It looks up with a longing gaze to the glories of heaven, and it cannot help but rouse us and rouse itself. Time is short compared to the work that needs to be done. Therefore, it devotes all that it has to the cause of the Lord. And finally, it is strengthened by the remembrance of Christ's example. He was clothed with zeal as with a cloak. Let us prove that we are his disciples by maintaining the same spirit of zeal. But it's going to take a commitment from us. It's going to take a commitment. The greatest invitation possible is contained in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. To all who will hear, Christ gives an invitation. The primary meaning is that he is standing outside the church, waiting for an invitation to come inside the fellowship. Our church must invite Christ to come in and become the center of heartfelt worship, adoration, and love. Yet it is also true of each and every person, just as it is of each and every church. The opportunity is ours to either accept that or reject it. So hear this appeal personally. 
Although it is addressed to the church, it also applies to individuals. It applies to you, and it applies to me. Christ says, if anyone... Now, notice, God does not force himself upon anyone. No one is saved against his or her will. No one is compelled to obedience who wants to be rebellious. Our heart or soul is likened to a dwelling place, and we must open the door of our life to Christ. Each of us likes to rule the roost, do we not? You like to be in control of your own destiny, control of your matters, your finances, everything that God has blessed you with. We feel that it is our responsibility to take charge of that. But you see, we must surrender to his lordship. We must open our life to him and let him take control. We must surrender to his lordship. We must submit to his will and word freely. We must lovingly obey. It is not attending religious services or leading a decent life or believing a creed. It is opening our lives to Jesus and letting him be who he is. Lord of our life. Period. He is the Lord of our life. So sit down. Converse. Get to know him. Find his strength. Find his love. Find his peace. Find his self-control. Learn his interests. Become his disciple. Let his objective truth become your subjective experience. Because he has a love that won't quit. He never stops loving us, even when we're in that lukewarm state, just like the church of Laodicea. We need to stay hot. We need to strike while the coals are burning. God is providing us an opportunity. We can choose to accept it, or we can reject it. Day after day, the loving father came to the hospital, often with flowers in his hand. He would sit beside the bed of his comatose six-year-old daughter, talking to her about the wonderful world outside her window. Sometimes he would tell her a story, but in her unconscious state, the only sound she ever made was her labored breathing. One day her nurse, touched by the father's unrewarded faithfulness, ventured to say, it must be hard giving so much love when she's like this. He quickly responded, I'm going to keep on coming and I'm going to keep bringing flowers and telling her stories even if she's oblivious to it because I love her whatever and whatever state that she is in. Or whether or not she loves me back. That's how the Lord God approaches us. Thank goodness. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. But what a tender and poignant picture of God's love. Patiently, untiringly, he is in love with us. 
We may be unaware of his presence, and though we are spiritually comatose at times, but you see, we don't have to be that way. What our loving Lord said to the church of Laodicea, he says to each and every one of us, I stand at the door and knock. What our loving Lord said to the church of Laodicea, he says to each of us, he says, I wait at the door and I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And today, as always, God is reaching out to you. Respond now to the love that won't quit loving. Verse 21 contains another precious promise to God's overcomers. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The prospect seems to exceed all other promises to the overcomer in glory. A throne is the emblem of conquest, authority, and royal honor. A throne shared with Christ is the highest honor conceivable for a Christian. The honor is for those who overcome as Christ overcame. Christ overcame by the obedience even unto death and sets the pattern for his followers. Though they may face difficult circumstances, let them never forget that the cross, which seems like Christ's defeat, was in fact his victory over the world. Let us not forget that. These trials and tribulations we go through, they can be our victory. They can be our victory. As I conclude this morning, know that the letter to the church in Laodicea reminds me of the one legend of King Midas. Anybody familiar with King Midas? In return for acts of kindness performed for the gods, King Midas' wish was granted that everything he touched should turn to gold. Now, for a while, he was very fortunate, as you can imagine. But even when his food turned to gold, he saw that he would starve in the midst of plenty. He begged for the curse to be taken away. The church in Laodicea was wealthy. And while in comparison our church, we may not be wealthy, but we're wealthy in many different areas. We can't make waste to that. You see, they were wealthy, but it was a false prosperity. The church needed to trade in the robes of self-satisfaction and complacency with those white robes of a new commitment to Christ. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that we put on those white robes and we recommit ourselves to Christ, that we recommit to the mission and the values of this church. And I'm not implying that we've strayed away from that. Not at all. But we need to have this encouragement. We need to be encouraged to not only continue what we do, but find ways to do it even better. The only solution for the lukewarm church is that it must repent and readmit the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the same solution for the lost person and the lukewarm Christian as well. We must open our hearts to his knock. 
and instead of letting the lure of possessions and power make us unwilling to hear his invitation to that commitment. A loving God would have men hear and believe and turn from the idols of sin and self and in faith open up their life to the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. Let us pray. Lord, I pray for our ministers that they will preach your word. Help us to be ready in season and out of season. Help us to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Lord, give your church members a passion for holiness and purity. Help us to stay alert to Satan's strategies and show us where he is waiting to tempt us or cause us to fall. I pray that we as Christians, our behavior will be worthy of the gospel of Christ, sincere and without offense. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will result in true revival and spiritual awakening. Give us boldness in our witness and may our people be willing to obey the Great Commission and take your gospel outside the walls of this church. Please help us to have unity in all churches so that the world would believe that you sent your Son as the ultimate sacrifice to alleviate all sin and draw us closer to you. Thank you for your blessings and your provision in advance. But Lord, we also want to thank you for the opportunity to be a light in a dark world. It's a scary place, but we can take comfort in knowing that you never break your promises and you will take care of your people. Lord, help us to love as you do. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. Dave's going to come up, lead us in a final song, and afterwards um, we're going to do a quick little thing up here up front, and then after that we're going to be dismissed to the fellowship hall for the soup potluck. Everybody is welcome to come and enjoy with us in that fellowship. Dave? Thank you, Chris. And if you'll indulge me just for a moment off of what he was talking about, every time I hear someone speak and make a plea for an invitation of people to come to faith in Christ, I just want you to know, after all is said and done, I will be lingering up here. If you have questions, you know, we sang about when we all get to heaven. We sang about Calvary, mercy was free, grace, mercy was great, grace was free, goodness, love, and mercy. He's the way maker. Lord, wash me away. And this morning, if you know that you know that you have not received Christ as Savior, maybe watching at home, live, you're thinking the same thing, you don't know. If you died today, would you have eternal life with God? Well, you're going to have eternal life, but where, who are you going to have it with? And you don't know for certain. Now's that time. And after all is said and done this morning, uh, if you have questions or you want to know more about Jesus, I'll be up here for a little bit. You come and see me or Chris will be up front as well. All right? Let's stand together in a great song to enter each day and close each day with. Let's just sing the doxology. Praise God from all blessings for Pray.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.